Welcome to the Fertility Academy podcast, episode six. Today, I'll be chatting with a former patient of mine, Nikki Bergen, about all things IVF, male factor, and exercise during fertility struggles. Stay tuned. Welcome to Fertility Academy, a podcast where we provide you with information and tools to help you optimize your fertility to grow your family no matter where you are in your fertility journey. We offer interesting, creative, and evidence-based information and give you practical tools to help you get closer to your goal of building a family. I'm your host, Michelle Kapler. I'm a fertility-focused acupuncturist and Chinese medicine practitioner, board-certified fertility specialist, and fertility coach with over 10 years of experience helping my patients build their families. I'm so glad you're here with us. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Fertility Academy podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Kapler. Today, my interview is with Nikki Bergen. She is a Pilates instructor, the creator of the Bell Method, and someone who I love being connected to in my amazing group of female entrepreneurs kicking ass in their businesses locally here. Nikki's also a former patient of mine. She's very open about her fertility journey, and today she came on the podcast, and I thought we were going to talk mostly about exercise and pelvic blood flow and optimizing fertility through movement, but we ended up talking about some really interesting and important topics in our conversation with her personal journey with IVF. We talked about her experience doing IVF due to male factor infertility, being unhappy with her clinic and switching doctors, advocating for herself in the fertility clinic experience, being a type A and embracing the surrender. And yet we do talk about exercise and body movement as well. And she shares some great tips. So before I get to the interview, I just want to share Nikki's professional bio. So Nikki Bergen is the creator of the Bell Method and the Bump Method. She's an expert trainer with a passion for helping women feel confident and strong throughout their pregnancy and postpartum and beyond. An inspirational trainer and creative educator with a passion for encouraging women to lead happier, healthier lives, Nikki is one of Canada's most sought-after health and fitness experts. A former professional dancer, Nikki has dedicated her life to creating fitness programs that are creative with choreography from science, each one specifically designed to enable women to ditch the guilt and bring balance into their bodies. The methods feuds physical therapy with Pilates-style functional movement, helping women improve diastasis incontinence and prolapse. So without further ado, let's get on with the episode with Nikki. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you so much for being on the show today. So happy to be here. Thank you, Michelle. All right. So I've told the audience a little bit about you already in the intro, but I'd love to hear from you. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into doing what you do. So I am a Pilates instructor. I specialize in pelvic health. So I deal with lots of pregnant women, lots of postpartum women, um, but not just that, um, although that is definitely my niche. And I've been doing this for a long time. I'm aging myself here, but I have been... (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) I have been doing this now movement for about 20 years. Um, So I started as a teen, um, as a dancer, and then as a lot of us you know, get uh, on in our dance careers, things happen. So I injured my knee, I discovered Pilates. And then from there, it sort of organically grew. And I realized how powerful the methodology of movement is. Um, And then I realized just through working with clients that I was starting to get more and more um, women postpartum who were having issues with incontinence. 
And I would be teaching a class and they would say, oh, I can't do that move. I need to wear a pad. And I realized, and at the time I was in my mid twenties, I'm now almost 40. And I realized like I hadn't had kids yet, but I was like, there's a problem with this. Like, th- why is it that I'd be teaching a class and literally there were some classes about half of the women would be like, I can't do that. Wow. <laughs> like, mm, okay, well, how come? And they'd laugh about it. And I was like, okay, I need to explore this a little bit more. So I realized just organically what a gap there was in fitness programming that was specific to issues like incontinence, like diastasis rectus abdominis, also called DR or diastasis recti, basically separated abs from birth, prolapse. Um, you know, and a lot of these these women are told that it's just part of being a mother and they need to suck it up and, uh, you know, and just sort of accept that as their new normal. And so I realized that, you know, there needs to be a better, more proactive approach. And I'm quite, I'm quite passionate about that. And so I talk about it all the time. If you see me on Instagram and on the website and the bell method. So right now, because of COVID, we're teaching virtually, but I was teaching with my team across Toronto and for, you know, the past decade. Um, But the virtual classes, I have to say, are going really well. So um, we've got hundreds of women who join us now from all over the world. So it's been a bit of a silver lining to be able to teach women in in all different countries around the world. Amazing. Thank you so much for that introduction. You and I know each other through my clinical work. Uh, We met each other a few years ago when you were going through your own fertility journey. And um, it's always so interesting to meet people from all walks of life who have fertility struggles and especially people like yourself who are so healthy and take you take such good care of your body. And it's kind of interesting to see that it happens to all types of people. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your fertility journey, if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah. My gosh, that's why I'm here. I am an open book, my friend. Um, yeah. So I, long story short, we ended up basically trying when I was started I mean, I thought I was pretty young. I was about 34 in my world. That seemed young, but I know it depends on who you're talking to. I would say by today's standards, that's pretty young. Yeah. In a big city too. I mean, a lot of people delay having kids. And um, I had always kind of had it in my head. I, I talked to a lot of women because of what I do. And they had said, listen, like if it hasn't happened for six months of trying, just go get tested. Even though a lot of people say, wait a year. I was also a bit like, I had a feeling. Um, my husband had had a blunt trauma accident when he was growing up on a mountain bike, um, blunt testicular trauma, and um, he had a, an uncle who who was completely sterile. So I just I just had this feeling um, that we wanted to get things tested, um, and turns out I was right. So we ended up being told that first IUIs were an option because of male factor issues, um, and so we kind of got right on it. Our first IUI was a chemical pregnancy. Um, but at that time, I didn't know what that was. Um, and we were told, oh, but you can get pregnant. Isn't that great? You know? <laughs> wow. Very hard um, to be told that, you know, oh, you're pregnant. And I was like, what's a beta HCG? What's all this? You know, and, and you get that call and all of a sudden they're like, oh, actually, it's it's not doubling. You're going to lose this. And I remember just that feeling of like, what? You know, like it was just all, it was very, as anyone knows, going through fertility, it's sort of this crash course in a lot of, a lot about your body, hormones, anatomy, but it's also an emotional, like, I'm sure you're going to be talking about that in your podcast, Michelle, just the emotional component is massive. So anyhow, um, I'm giving you the very quick um, reader's digest version here. 
um, because there's so much we can talk about. But one thing I didn't mention was prior to our first IUI, um, they did, as you know, they do all the testing. So I did, you know, cycle monitoring and they were like, yeah, you're ovulating normally. Everything's normal, blah, blah, blah. However, on the sonohistogram, they did find a uterine polyp. And they were like, this is a huge polyp. It's about a centimeter. We need to remove it. So I did undergo a surgery prior to our first IUI. I'd never been under general anesthesia before. Like it was a full, like I remember being like, I have to get surgery. Like it was, I was so scared. Um, It all of course worked out. um, But I just remember that being a component. So there were issues, I would say, I guess on both sides, the overwhelming issue was, was the diagnosis of male factor, but I also had the polyp and I also had to do some stuff. And I saw you for, for lots of acupuncture. Um, my husband saw you. So we were really approaching it or trying to approach it with like, a, let's hope IUI works. I don't want to have to do the drugs for IVF, you know? Anyways, we did the natural cycle IUI, got pregnant, chemical pregnancy. And then they were like, let's just try again. And so the next month or as soon as we could, we did it again. Didn't work. Third time didn't work. And they were like, let's just start putting you on drugs now. And I was like, why? I I ovulate normally. I'm going to get the LH surge on day 15. Like I know my body, like there's no issues here. Um, And they started just, they were kind of, I felt like they were throwing darts at the board, like just trying to see if something stuck, but it didn't feel very customized. And as you guys know, like it was just, it was so time consuming and just so emotionally, I was like, I just, I want to do something that's going to improve our chances of success beyond like 15% or 20%. So after three IUIs, I was like, nope, we're going to do IVF. So we switched clinics. And uh, I'm also, I would say to anyone listening to this, if you don't like your clinic, switch, (laughs) because I had a radically better experience at my second clinic. Um, And I just felt more supported. I felt like there were, it was more intimate. I felt like less of a number. Um, and that made a huge difference also to my own mental headspace, I think. Of course. Yeah. I just want to pause there and, and go into that a little bit, if that's okay with you. Yep. That's a discussion that I have quite frequently in clinic with my patients. Um, you know, they'll come to me for their initial appointment and they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm just not really sure about what's going on. I don't know why they're doing the things that they're doing. I don't know why I'm getting the recommendation. It's really frustrating to communicate with the staff. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't feel good about any of this. And my suggestion is always, you have every right to a second opinion or even a third opinion. And there's nothing wrong with interviewing different doctors and see who you click with because there's actual research to support better outcomes in cases in all types of medicine, not just in the context of fertility, but people's outcomes tend to be better when they trust their doctor, when they're behind their doctor's treatment plan. And especially given in Ontario, we are working with an exchange of money for these services as opposed to it being covered by the provincial health care plan. So I think it's even more important to be able to get behind what you're doing. But the response that I always get is, well, I don't want to offend my doctor. I don't want to be a pain. I don't want to, you know, offend anybody or make anybody feel bad. So would you have any advice for somebody who's feeling that way? Because I know that you are very good at advocating for yourself in the fertility experience. I swear on here, is this an explicit podcast, Michelle? Um, You know, it makes me quite 
it makes me upset because I actually talk about advocating for yourself so much to my pregnant women regarding birth plans, regarding what they want and their wishes. And it's also a personality thing. And I get it. It can be very difficult for people to, especially if they're pleasers or obligers, you know, and, and, and so I would just say, you know what, like what couple of things, if you had a friend, what advice would you give to your friend in that situation? You would probably tell your friend, you deserve better. Don't put up with that. You would, you would feel comfortable telling your friend that she deserves better. So you should believe that you deserve better also. And let's be real, as you mentioned, you're a customer, right? Like there is an aspect of, of customer service. And I think that in Canada, sometimes we think of healthcare, we've been told with our system and we, we dutifully wait in line because it's all covered. We're used to a healthcare system that is free, so to speak. And all of a sudden we're in a paid model and it's like, you don't have to act like this is free. This isn't free cost us 20k like dude mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what i'm saying and that's that's low some people i know they've gotten into the six figures here absolutely yeah that's great advice thank you so let's pick up where we left off so ivf we're doing it switch clinics you're feeling good about things so tell me more feeling good about things and it was you know just as an aside um for people who know the geography i live in south toronto and i ended up at a clinic in markham so it took me 45 minutes on a toll road every morning there, 45 minutes back, I ended up getting like a transponder. I spent like hundreds of dollars on the 407 toll road. But honestly, was for me, that money was so worth it because it was such a better clinic, a better experience. I wasn't on the subway in the morning. I was in my car listening to podcasts, listening to music. It wasn't this very upregulating in terms of my nervous system experience. So you know, I would say like, yes, if it's far, it still might be worth it for you to switch clinics because it was far, but again, a good decision for me. Anyways, we ended up um, having, you know, fairly good luck. We ended up with um, doing the IVF cycle um, and we ended up getting five embryos, like blastocysts at the end of it all. Um, I was 35 when we did the retrieval and we ended up deciding to do PGS testing. So we sent the five away and we came back with two chromosomally normal embryos. And we were told that um, um, we also, for those of you getting into the nitty gritty here, we had taken out 16 eggs and I think that maybe 12 were mature and half they did with ICSI. And half they did regular IVF. And that was my doctor's protocol. He's like, listen, if we don't, we don't necessarily like to have to do ICSI because of any risks involved with puncturing the, the, um, the egg, so on and so forth. Turns out that none of the embryos that we used IVF for worked. Only the ICSI embryos worked. So I was mad because I was like, we could have gotten more embryos if you had just done all ICSI. Like, why did we essentially waste half of my eggs with, you know, just putting them in the little petri dish. They didn't want to play together. We needed to have to fix <laughs> all of them, you know. So I remember that being another like, oh God, now we only have two. And I always wanted two kids, you know. And he had said at the time, he's like, you know, we go into the office as his pre-transfer. He's like, okay, we're going to talk about the next steps. So you only have two PGS tested normal embryos. You should do another cycle for insurance. And that was the the advice. And I was just like, I can't. Like I just physically, I didn't want to do another cycle emotionally, financially. I was just like, um, 
I would rather just go ahead with this transfer. And he's like, well, how many children do you want? And I was like, well, we'd like to have two kids if we can. And I remember doc, and I love this doctor. He was just very frank. He's like, well, you're, you're that's definitely, you know, if you, they both succeed, it would be against the odds. He said, if you want two kids, you should have four embryos in terms of like odds of success. But I was like, I'm going to take my chances, doc. <laughs> so, um, and we have a very positive outcome. So it turns out fast forward, we did um, the first transfer. It was a natural transfer. So I didn't have to take any meds leading up to it. Um, I just took the progesterone after the fact and it took. So we had our first daughter in April of 2018. And then about a year and a half later, um, in 2019, in the summer, we did the second transfer. And now I have a little baby boy. So we ended up having the best possible outcome, I think, in the sense that we wanted two kids. We don't now have to worry about any more embryos in the freezer because I feel like I would want to have all of those children. <laughs> That's a conversation I'd love to have with you. I just, just what it feels like to have, if you have all these viable embryos in the freezer, just what that can do to you mentally too. Cause I've, I've thought about that often, you know, what if we had had four embryos in the freezer? Am I going to now have four kids at 40, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a complicated conversation. And it's such a highly personal decision. I was actually talking with a patient about it yesterday. And she has six embryos on ice. And she says, Well, I thought a couple of years ago that I'd want to donate them. But now I don't think I want to do that. And I have no idea what to do. It's complicated. It's very, it's such a good conversation to have, though. And it's, I don't think something that people can really understand unless they've lived it. Absolutely. And I would say that that statement is applicable to all of this. And, yeah. you know, especially in the context of fertility, but then continuing through the process, you don't understand what it's like to lose a pregnancy until you've been through it. You don't understand what it's like to have a stillbirth unless you've been through it or to be pregnant and have a negative birth outcome or to have a, trauma, a traumatic birth or even just being a parent. You don't know what it's like until you've been there. That's true. Yeah. All that's very true. <laughs> yeah. I think um, I just want to go back a little bit. You were talking about ICSI and your embryos and how you used it for half. And just for those listeners who aren't uh, familiar with the terminology, ICSI is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which means that they take a needle and pick one of the best sperm and actually inject it into the egg, as opposed to allowing the eggs and the sperm to meet and mingle, as you said, Nikki, uh, to make the embryos more um, in a less medical way, I guess I would say. Yeah. And so I'd love for you to speak to your experience with that a little more deeply, because I think that that's a theme that comes up quite frequently in the context of fertility, where there's a lot of, well, at the end of the day, we can make a calculated decision and or take a calculated risk. But we really don't know anything ever. And we all just kind of do the best we can to weigh our odds and, and make the decision from there. And with that comes this real surrender that has to occur in the process. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Oh God, the word surrender was definitely a mantra of mine because it's, it doesn't come easily to me. And I think a lot of people, especially the ones listening to fertility podcasts are probably more type A, like you and I both self-admit. Indeed. <laughs> you know, and, and we're both business owners. We're both like, you know, we're used to making a certain amount of effort in that yielding a certain outcome. And in this scenario with fertility, you know, 
you can dutifully take all your vitamins, do all your acupuncture, you can do all the things, the reflexology, the, you know, you name it. And yes, can it move the needle? Sure, but it's not a guarantee of anything. And that's really hard to wrap your head around. Um, and it's, it's also really hard when you're doing all the things. And if your partner isn't really on board with that, especially with the diagnosis of male factor, I just remember having a conversation with my friend. So regarding funding, we were told that we could get, I think it was about $8,000 covered, um, for our cycle, but we would have to have waited a year to get that retrieval done. And I talked to a friend of mine and she said to me, Nikki, okay, it's a lot of money, but what can your marriage handle? (laughs) Can it handle another year? Like what's better for your marriage, spending eight grand or waiting a year? And I was like, I didn't have to think about it. I was like spending eight grand because every day I'm watching my husband like a hawk. How much coffee did you just drink? You can't have that beer. Put that down. Are you taking your vitamins? And it was just a way I felt so out of control. I started trying to make sure that he was being as diligent about all of these things as I was. And, you know, it's not in his nature. He's a little more laid back. And I I started feeling like a bit of resentment to be like, I am doing all the things I am shooting myself up with all the drugs. I'm going to all the appointments. The least you could do is not have that goddamn coffee. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's another whole thing. And so I think that surrendering is, is difficult in the sense that, especially when it comes to another person, like for me, I knew I could rest easy at night, that I was doing everything within my power to eat healthy and improve my odds of success, but you can't control your partner. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one. And I see that quite frequently in clinic, actually, Um, you know, in terms of the statistics with infertility, what the Canadian statistical numbers tell us is that about 30% of infertility is female factor, about 30% is male factor, and the rest of it is a combination of both. And so it's a pretty significant contribution from the male side, but 95% of my patients are female. So it's really interesting to observe that. And it's also really interesting to observe these scenarios where Sometimes we do get the husbands that want to come in and do their part and they come in and do the the acupuncture and they take the supplements. And and I would say that your husband was definitely more on that side of things. But I do see scenarios where the infertility is clearly male factor as shown on the lab tests. You know, there's sperm abnormalities or the count is low or, or what have you. And the woman is coming and doing all of the things, as you said, eating all the foods, getting all the acupuncture, meditating, driving herself crazy. And yet her husband won't quit smoking pot, won't quit drinking, won't quit smoking cigarettes, isn't interested in giving up, you know, greasy fatty foods or, you know, whatever his addiction is. And it's so interesting to see these dynamics unfold. I would say we're, I would say infuriating (laughs) (laughs) and interesting. I I would choose a different adjective there. Yeah. it, It infuriates me because it's just so it's patriarchal. It's sexist. It's just so like, you know, in, in all the unsolicited advice that I received, you wouldn't imagine. Oh, you know, and I think everyone can relate to that. It's like going through it. Oh, well, well you know, you should just relax or you should just uh, make sure you're make sure you're taking, you know, I don't even know whatever 
green smoothie was helpful for that person, you know, or make sure you're upping this vitamin. And I'm like, do you realize who you're talking to? I teach this shit. I'm a health professional. Mm -hmm. I'm a this person. I've been doing this for a long time. And I would get so, I'm I'm getting agitated remembering it. (laughs) Right. It's just so infuriating that like, look, I'm not the problem here. Like I am not the problem. Why are you all assuming that it's the woman? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I see that all the time in clinic. I had a patient come in last week and um, she suffered from multiple losses, multiple miscarriages in the first trimester. And they're finally going to go to a fertility clinic and get some testing done. And her husband doesn't want to go for a semen analysis. (gasps) The answer was, we're having miscarriages. So it's, it's obviously you that needs the treatment. And the science behind it is that it's 50% likely that it's male factor. I know. And and you know what? It's interesting you say that. And and keep in mind, this shouldn't be about a blame game. I don't want Mm -hmm. anyone thinking, listening to like, it's her fault, his fault. It's not like that. But it's more like, let's be pragmatic about it. If we see a weakness in the link, like the weakest link here, like let's work together. It's not about blame. It's like, okay, what can we do together to improve this? And it shouldn't be about blame. And yet, it's so entrenched in our society. So I remember it was Christmas. We had just had that chemical pregnancy. Um, you know, and I treat it like it felt like a miscarriage. I mean, yes, it was very early and it was like a, basically a period that lasted about two weeks, but you know, it felt very much like a loss. And it, anyways, I ended up being, I was very emotional about it. It was the very first thing. First experience of infertility was, yeah, you're pregnant. Oh, you're not. Um, with the IUI, I called my father because we were going over to, to his house for Christmas for dinner. And he had always been making these comments. Well, if you want to conceive, you know, old school, like you need to eat more meat or, you know, <laughs> wow. stupid stuff like very like you need to, you're working too much, you exercise too much, you know. And uh, anyway, so I thought if I call him and tell him what just happened, maybe he'll just lay off a bit and like stop with the unsolicited comments. So boy, was I wrong because <laughs> I called him and I told him, listen, we just had an early loss um, coming over, you know, just want to let you know before the holidays so he doesn't come up, whatever. And then sure enough, we're sitting around the Christmas table and he's into the Christmas booze and he's just, you know, I think just starts to talk a little bit with the wine and say, well, you know, you have a responsibility once you conceive, it's up to the woman to make sure you don't miscarry because da, da, da. And at the time I can just remember my, I'm turning beet red. My brothers are staring at me wide eyed, like, Oh my God, she's going to lose it. My husband is squeezing my knee under the table just to be like, don't lose it. Don't ruin Christmas. Don't lose it. And I just calmly was like, yeah, I can see maybe where you think that. And then we left, like we just left, hmm. you know, and it was just so And and that, I think for me, was a moment where I was like, wow, like I know my dad is in his 60s, he's of a different generation, but this, some people still think that way. A lot of people still think that way. And so I'm like, I'm going to talk about this because women need to stop feeling the shame and the blame. I am sitting here with my mouth gaping open at that, (laughs) even though that story isn't uncommon. People have, people say shitty things to people all the time. And people give unsolicited advice all the time. So would you have any advice for people over the upcoming holidays whose families might overstep a little bit? 
Yeah, I think you have to recognize the source too. Like in the sense that like, and this is a very hard, you have to call on your higher self. <laughs> it's kind of like an out of body experience where you're like, all right, I recognize that in his brain, he wants a grandchild in his brain. He, this is his belief system. I'm probably not going to be successful in changing his belief system at this point in his life, just knowing the audience, knowing that person. So I can choose to really let it really impact me, or I can just recognize that he's, he's ignorant and that might not, that likely isn't going to change. And I can love him for his other qualities or, you know, and just say, yeah, you're a great cook and you're funny and you're supportive in other areas. But in this area, like, you know, I'm just going to have to, I'm just going to have to like put up a bit of a mental and an emotional barrier here. So I was wrong to go to him and share with him what we were going through. And after that, I never, ever told him anything, you know, and I was like, you're no longer a person in my inner circle here that I'm going to share what's, what's going on. So you have to figure out who are your people that you can really talk to. And I think for me, you're obviously one of them. um, And I'm sure you are for many people, Michelle, but also I found a lot of support. um, Believe it or not on Instagram, I created a private Instagram account, um, just for fertility. And I got, I think I had about 250 people on there and we were all going through cycles at the same time. We ended up sending care packages to each other across countries, across in the UK and Vancouver and all over. And I found like these, these women were really and truly my lifeline. And so for me that, and it might be different for everybody, but I just, I needed to talk to people who didn't need to be, I didn't need to explain what I was going through. They just got it. Mm -hmm. And those were strangers on the internet. Yeah. Well, and it speaks to that earlier conversation where you don't get it until you get it. You don't understand what it's like until you've been through it. I'd love to talk a little bit about, um, you know, you are an expert in body movement and exercise. And so um, do you have, I, I get asked this a lot in clinic, which is how am I supposed to exercise if I'm looking to conceive? And I think the answer is going to be different for everybody. But do you have any, you know, general recommendations as a professional? Because um, I, I personally like to talk about pelvic blood flow. And so I, I consistently recommend Pilates to people who are going through fertility stuff. I direct them to your website all the time. Because um, I think it starts way before you actually conceive. And so, you know, using that method can be really useful even before. But I'm wondering if you might have any tips beyond that or might like to elaborate. Yeah, I think definitely what you mentioned, pelvic blood flow is key. So in Pilates, for those of you who don't know, it's a lot of pelvic health, pelvic floor activation, and, and a lot of movements that are low impact and yet really invigorating for your body. And so you know, it's not to say that that high impact exercise is off the table, especially if it's something you've been practicing for a long time, and it helps you with your own, you know, stress levels Then have at it. Um, But I would say that I think I do see quite a few people who use who abuse exercise, I'm talking about the super fit people, and they use it as a coping mechanism. And yet it might be upregulating their nervous system too much, and they might be building too much cortisol. 
you know, and so I'm talking about the people who will wake up at 5am to squeeze in a workout for an hour, and they're doing insanity plyometrics jumping up and down. And then they go and they have their, you know, 10 hour work day, and then they have like, meetings late at night, and then they're at the computer, and then they only get six hours of sleep or less. And then they do insanity again in the morning, like in that scenario, I'd be like, you guys need to chill out. Like, no more, you know, um, you need to work more on things that are going to downregulate your nervous system. And I know that's a large part of what, you know, acupuncture does for you too, among many other things, but just this idea that you want to create a hospitable environment for fertility to happen. And if you are in any type of sympathetic, like fight or flight situation, you know, and exercise can sometimes contribute to that. So I would say it's a fine line between exercise that leaves you feeling invigorated and strong and, and reducing your stress versus exercise where you're essentially punishing your body um, and doing things too much, too much strain on your muscles, joints, and, you know, frankly, your hormones. So yeah, obviously I'm biased. Pilates is, I think the perfect type of exercise. Yoga is fantastic as well. Um, but you don't in yoga get quite the same pelvic floor blood flow as you would in Pilates. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's, it's something where I would ask someone right now if they're like, yeah, but I really like CrossFit or I really like this. Okay. How do you, A, how much sleep are you getting? First, let's start there. I don't want you doing CrossFit if you only sleep six hours a night. What are you eating? How are you feeling in the sense of, are you really, really sore for like five days after that workout? You might be overdoing it a little bit. And then people often ask me once you go through like your, um, when you're going through, say your stims and you're getting all the meds injecting and you feel you're getting more and more bloated as you know, your ovaries are expanding. What kind of exercise do you do then? You know, some people are like, I still want to lift my weights. And I'm just, I say, listen, I did nothing. I taught my classes, but I basically stood there and did a couple of demonstrations. But in those days of retrieval and whatnot, and, you know, obviously ovarian torsion is a real thing. You need to really like ease up. You can always get fit and challenge yourself at another stage in your life and another time in your life, but maybe not when you're injecting yourself with hormones every day. Like I just, I don't think that that's the time for high intensity exercise. That's really good advice. Thank you. And so you said that you did um, very little in terms of organized exercise, although I would assume that you were quite active in just being doing what you do and, and teaching your classes. I mean, yeah, I, was, I mean, I have to, as a teacher, I was still teaching several classes a day, but like I could demonstrate movement and then, you know, and, and make it more of, of a movement. So I wouldn't have to do the entire class. Right. So, yeah, I would say that really, I think the key, and this is also actually a similar sentiment that I share with women for when they are also postpartum. So as a side note, but just tune into how your body is feeling. How is that exercise making you feel? Are you feeling depleted or are you feeling, you know, good afterwards? That's another one. I think a lot of us are disconnected from our bodies and we don't really, we just kind of check the box. I've gotten the burn. I've gotten the sweat, you know, and we're not necessarily tuning into our hunger signals or our tension or our soreness, all those things. So yeah, I think that it's okay. First of all, if you don't want to do anything, don't feel guilty about that. It's okay then don't do anything. Maybe all you need is, is 
to see Michelle for some acupuncture or, you know, go and, and get, get a foot massage or get something that makes you feel good. I think the emotional headspace is very important also. And so, yeah, I didn't do anything really at all other than stand and talk while I taught my classes. So less demonstration. And then with my transfer, right after my transfer, I was very cautious as well. So, you know, I was pretty much doing nothing I'd say for like the first 10 days other than walking, light stretching, meditation, yoga. Like I certainly wasn't going for runs. Right. And the idea is that that's what felt good for you. And so that's what you did. And I think that 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 can be a really challenging concept, especially in fertility, because as you go through the process further and further, I think there's this tendency to have less and less trust in your body and less and less trust in your body's ability to do what it needs to do. And so the concept of listening to your body and accepting that feedback from your body can be troubling for some people. So would you have any advice for anybody who's feeling that way? I, I know a lot of people can often get irritated with the advice, listen to your body. Mm-hmm. So like, know how, like, what does that even mean? Listen to my body. Um, I mean, it really just means being kind to yourself and showing your body some grace. And so I think, you know, in our culture, especially as women, we are often pushing down signals that our body is trying to tell us. So look at PMS. We're told it's normal. Just pop an Advil, make it go away. Or I'm on a diet. I'm hungry. No, I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to have a coffee and I'm just going to try to ignore my hunger, hunger signals. You know, oh, I'm not comfortable wearing these high heel shoes. Um, too bad. They look good. Suck it up. Ignore the feeling that your toes really squished and uncomfortable. So we are trained from a young age as women to ignore signals that our body is giving us through so many different avenues. And it can be very, very difficult to go back and say, actually, no, my toe doesn't like this, or I actually am hungry. What am I hungry for? Am I bored or am I hungry? (laughs) That's another one. These are all things and it takes practice and it can feel very counterintuitive and it can bring up, I think, a lot of emotions for women who've been conditioned to push those feelings down. And I think that's partly why they get so angry when they're told, just listen to your body. Cause they're like, I've practiced the past 20 years, not listening to my body. And now all of a sudden I'm supposed to listen to my body. And so I would try to unpack that a little bit in your own history. Like, what is it that you've been guilty of? You know, that's really good advice. Thank you. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about the bell method. Would you tell us a little bit about what that is and what inspired you to create that? Because I think it's a really great, if somebody's looking for some body movement to add to what they're doing to contribute to the fertility journey. Again, I always recommend Pilates in my clinical context because I just think it's really the best of all the worlds. You get the nervous system calming effects, you get the happy brain chemicals, you're not necessarily overtaxing your body or your adrenals by doing that type of movement because it's lower impact. And then you're getting that pelvic blood flow. So I think it's just a really great combination of everything you need. Um, So I'd love to hear a little bit about the system that you've created and how you deliver that and and all that stuff. Sure. So I am Bell Method is essentially Pilates meets pelvic health. So there's a lot of different styles of Pilates out there. Our style is definitely, I would consider it very pelvic health focused and definitely regardless of which class you take. So we've got a prenatal class, um, both 
a virtual class where you join on Zoom and we talk about pushing techniques and prep and reducing abdominal wall separation, reducing prolapse. And we also have self-guided programs where you log into the website. So we've got both the live teacher and like just something you do at your own pace. So in all of those classes, those are all still pelvic health based. Then we have a postnatal class, which is like you can start this class literally as soon as three weeks postpartum. Um, and we have a level two postnatal class because we need to really make sure that women understand that there's something called progressive overload. So in a way in pregnancy, we do something called progressive underload, meaning that, um, and I kind of made that term up because progressive overloads a thing, but underloads not really a thing. And in a way you can look at that and apply it to fertility as well, where it's like, you might've been operating at a certain activity level, right? When you conceive or when you're going, starting fertility treatments, but we need to be able to have the grace to slowly scale things down as we go through treatment or as we start to get more and more and more pregnant. Um, and so that helps reduce um, strain or something called intra-abdominal pressure. So there's a pressure of that baby pushing out on your abdominal wall. In maybe many ways, you could draw a parallel to the pressure of your ovaries getting bigger and bigger each day of your stem cycle. So we need to kind of start to scale things down in a way that is still, we're still getting a great workout, but we're doing it in a way that's appropriate for what we're going through. And then postpartum, we do the opposite. We start slow, but then we start to ramp things up. So I, I tend to see a lot of people not sure what to do postpartum. So they fall into one of two camps. They either do nothing because they're afraid to do anything or they're tired. And then they jump back into like their high intensity classes without so much as any, you know, deep core rehab moves. And so we teach people, we want you to start before six weeks postpartum. We're going to start super slow. I'm talking breathing. Okay. <laughs> and then we start to slowly, but continuously ramp things up. So there's postpartum level one, then there's a next class for after your three months, you're done your three months of rehab postpartum level two. Then we've got like bell fusion, which is the class that's really challenging. And it's definitely for after you have had your rehab and before you conceive. So it's not appropriate for pregnancy either. I like to call it my Pilates on crack class. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not easy. It's not your mama's Pilates. So there's, and, and but there's, there's something for everybody every woman based on whatever stage they're at. And so essentially the idea is that, and this happens a lot, women will find me when they're pregnant and then they'll come and they'll, they'll go through the whole circle. They'll go postpartum one, postpartum two, then they're feeling really strong. They go to the bell class, then they conceive again, they come back into prenatal. So it's like a loop, you know? And so it's been great because I've, I've worked out with several women throughout you know, their IVF journey, and then they conceive, they switch to a different class. And, you know, and then I see them for baby number two. So it's been really, really a blessing to be able to be part of this stage of women's lives. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. So before we sign off, one thing I like to ask all my guests who come on the podcast is if somebody is hearing all of this information for the first time today, what's one piece of advice you could give that person? who's just getting started in fertility in any of it, um, in exercise, in the context of fertility or just in fertility in general, wherever you want to take things. If you want to talk about the IVF side of things or the exercise side of things, I'll let you uh, take it. I mean, there's so much to say. A couple of things is certainly to 
be kind to yourself and to ditch the guilt. So, you know, it's okay for you to distance yourself sometimes from baby showers or friends that are, you know, gloriously pregnant and seem to just sneeze and get pregnant. You know, we all have friends like that. Um, it, it doesn't make you a bad friend. Try not to have guilt about that. Just know that like whatever you need to do for your own mental health is okay. And it's, I think, important to show yourself that kindness and you're not a bad friend. You're not a bad person. You're just going through something really hard right now. But I think learning if you can to trust the outcome and surrender. One of my favorite books that I read when I was going through it was by Gabrielle Bernstein. It's called The Universe Has Your Back. And she actually wrote it when she was going through fertility struggles in her late 30s. Um, It's not all about fertility by any means, but there are some snippets of wisdom in there that I found were really, really helpful. So I think the mental headspace is really important. And I would say do whatever you need to do to really focus on that for yourself. That's wonderful advice. Thank you. And I'll make sure that I put a link to that book in the show notes today so people can easily access it. So Nikki, before I let you go, if if people are interested in connecting with you, can you tell us a little bit more about how people can reach out to you and find your programs or just find you on social media? Yep. So they can follow me at The Bell Method, Bell spelled B-E-L-L-E, or at thebellmethod.com. You can use the contact form on the website. You can send me a DM, although my DMs are a little insane. So I I recommend email. (laughs) Um, And that's it. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story and your wisdom. And I think people are going to get a lot out of this episode. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for doing this. So necessary. So that was my interview with Nikki. After I stopped recording, she talked about comparisons and how sometimes she feels guilty for telling her story where it was male factor and it affected her marriage. But on the other hand, there's so many couples out there who have gone through many more cycles and faced different kinds of adversity. And sometimes she feels a little strange talking about her struggles when she was able to get pregnant both times with just two embryos. And we had a conversation about that. And I think comparisons are not useful in the context of fertility. Hard is hard. Your hard might look different than someone else's hard, but hard is still hard. It's important not to diminish your own struggle because someone with a different set of of circumstances might need more treatment or might have gone through more extensive procedures or suffered more losses or struggled in a different way. Your pain and struggle are still valid. And just as we don't want to compare ourselves to folks who have an easier time, we also don't want to compare ourselves to folks who have had an experience that might be perceived as harder than our own. It's really not a constructive exercise. So with that, that's it for me today, and I'll look forward to seeing you next Wednesday. Next week, I'm going to be talking with Renee Pilgrim, who is a dear friend of mine and colleague, and we're going to chat about managing expectations. It's going to be a good one. So until next Wednesday, take care. Thank you for joining us on Fertility Academy. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you loved our content today, please be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with someone who you think might find it helpful. Don't forget to subscribe to be the first to be notified of new episodes. A new one comes out every Wednesday. To keep in touch with us and to continue the conversation, you can find us over on Instagram at Fertility Academy or join us on our private Facebook group, the Fertility Academy Community. Both are linked in the show notes today. Until next time, have a great week.